our hearts to your testimonies, not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jane Austen's book, Pride and Prejudice, is a favorite around our house. I love the story, not least because of the characters in it and because of its insights into human nature. Uh, but if you're familiar with the story, you know the story revolves around this relationship between two young English nobles. You've got Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy. Both of them exhibit pride and prejudice, <laughs> surprise, surprise, um, against one another. Darcy is proud of his high station and he's prejudiced against Elizabeth's family and low connections. Elizabeth is proud that she doesn't need a man like Darcy, whom she judges, she prejudges rightly, to be a snob. But as the story unfolds, their impressions of one another begin to change. And probably Darcy's changes first because he falls in love with Elizabeth, with this woman that he thinks is from a family of no account. And so he works up the nerve and he finally actually goes to her and proposes to her, even though he's still filled with pride and contempt towards her family's low connections. He loves her so much, he just proposes to her anyway. And in the midst of this proposal, she still senses that he feels contempt. She knows that it's there, and so she just rejects him outright. And she explains that it's because of his attitude, because of his character, because of the way he acts, his pride, that she doesn't want to have anything to do with him. And so Darcy responds to her, and I'm going to give you some actual words from the book. Darcy responds, he says, Could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your connections? To congratulate myself on the hope of relations whose condition in life is so decidedly beneath my own? And so somehow Darcy, I guess, is thinking that this is going to endear him. I don't know what he's thinking when he's doing this. But he says this, and he basically admits that, yeah, yeah, I am a snob, and I'm justified for feeling the way that I do about your family. And Darcy is this great man, and so he's accustomed to speaking this way to people and watching them shrink and shrivel up. And so his words would have cut anybody else down to size, but Elizabeth Bennet is not just anyone else. She would rather be an old maid than to hitch her wagon to that kind of arrogance. And so Elizabeth replies with what I think is one of the greatest comebacks of all time. Um, she, uh, young ladies, if there's ever an arrogant man that you need to speak to and you don't know the words, go then listen to Elizabeth Bennett. This is what she says to him. She says, you are mistaken, Mr. Darcy. If you suppose that the mode of your declaration affected me in any other way, than as it spared me the concern which I might have felt in refusing you had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner. From the very beginning, from the first moment, I, I may almost say of my acquaintance with you, your manners impressing me with the fullest of your arrogance, your conceit, and your selfish disdain of the feelings of others were such as to form that groundwork of disapprobation on which succeeding events have built so immovable dislike. And I had not known you a month 
before I felt that you were the last man in the world whom I could ever be prevailed on to marry. And then he takes his, his leave. It's, it's the most epic rejection in all of literature. Um, it's glorious, actually, because he, at this point in the, in the story, he, he deserves it. Um, I was looking this up yesterday, and I looked up the book on Google, Google Books, and they had a scan of the book, and I turned to this portion so I could write down um, these excerpts for you, and somebody had written out next to Elizabeth's remarks on this scan on Google Books, good girl. <laughs> um, but as you read the rest of the story, Darcy begins to understand how he had undermined himself by his own pride. And so as the rest of the book unfolds, he endeavors to be a different kind of a man in order to win Elizabeth. He's going to have to have a better character resume if he hopes to have any kind of an entree with Elizabeth Bennett. So think about this for a second. Would you ever accept a suitor or even a friend who consistently treated you with contempt? who consistently treated you with disdain, who consistently maybe lied to you, or who consistently gossiped about you. Basically, would you accept someone as a friend or even an acquaintance who you knew was constantly treating you shabbily? Well, no, you, you wouldn't. Not only would you not accept friendship on those terms, you would probably do everything in your power to avoid that kind of a person. You wouldn't want to be around them at all. They would be so repellent that you would avoid them at all costs. The entryway for friendship or for, or for any kind of a relationship is always paved with good character, with some level of trustworthiness, of kindness, of concern for the other. Where those kinds of things are missing, there's not going to be any friendship. There's not even going to be any kind of a, of a relationship eventually. When we come to 2 Corinthians, that's what we find out is, is going on here between Paul and the Corinthians. If you haven't opened up your Bibles yet, open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're looking at verses 12 through 14. What we're going to see in this text is Paul's response to some questions that were beginning to emerge among the Corinthians about his character. At the end of 1 Corinthians, you may remember in chapter 16 that Paul announces his intention to travel to Corinth in order to spend an extended amount of time with the congregation there in Corinth. He's writing from Ephesus. It's been a while since he's been with them. You'll, you'll remember when he evangelized them and first preached to them, he stayed with them for a year and a half. He knew these people well, but now he's been gone for a while. He writes to them, and at the end of 1 Corinthians, he says, I'm coming back. And I'm going to spend a good amount of time with you when I, when I come back. For a variety of reasons, those plans that he announced at the end of 1 Corinthians 16, those did not come to fruition. And now there's a question, it looks like, among the people, whether or not Paul is a straight shooter. Can we trust this guy? Is he making things up when he writes to us? He says he's going to come to us. He's not coming to us like he said he would. And so Paul is taking these three verses to argue that he has acted with integrity towards them, despite what their impressions might be of him. 
So their impressions, in fact, are wrong about him. He's, he's not actually like Darcy trying to dig himself out of a character hole. Um, Paul says, I, I never was in a hole to begin with. I always behaved with integrity towards you. And so in these three verses, Paul is explaining the reasons that he has for boasting. And all of these boasts are relating to Paul's integrity towards the Corinthians. And so we've got three verses. We've got three points. We're going to look at Paul's integrity in verse 12, Paul's writing in verse 13, and then Paul's hope in the last part of verse 13 through verse 14. So Paul's integrity, Paul's writing, and Paul's hope. So everybody look at Paul's integrity in verse 12. He says this at verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Now, remember from our previous look in chapter 1 that these first-person plural pronouns in 2 Corinthians, especially at the beginning of the book, are kind of a figure of speech. They're a literary plural. And so when Paul says we and us, he means I and me. So in this case, Paul is talking about his own boasting. So when he says our boast is this, what he means is my boast is this. He's boasting in the testimony of his own conscience. Now, that word, translated as conscience, refers to the faculty that all human beings have of being able to judge or evaluate one's conduct and to evaluate one's conduct in accordance with a given or recognized norm. So conscience, let's make sure we all understand this, biblically speaking, conscience doesn't provide the norms. Okay, so for us, the norms come from God's revelation. That's where the norms come from. But conscience functions to judge whether or not our behavior aligns with the norms that have already been provided to us. So when Paul says that he behaved in simplicity and in godly sincerity towards the Corinthians, he's saying that his conscience has, has judged that he has acted in accordance with God's revelation. He hasn't lied to them. He hasn't mistreated them. He hasn't slandered them. He's been behaving with integrity towards them. Now, this does not mean that human consciences are always perfect. We're fallen creatures. Sometimes we don't understand the norm correctly. Sometimes people don't acknowledge God's revelation. And so when that happens, people's consciences are not going to confirm them in the right kinds of decisions. Sometimes we sinfully suppress our conscience, the Bible says. In any case, it's even though those things are true, even though it's true that conscience isn't always a, a perfect guide because of our fallenness, it's never safe or right to ignore our conscience. And Paul is saying that his conscience testifies to his uprightness toward the Corinthians. They have no complaints against him that could be justified because he behaved towards them with simplicity and godly sincerity. So what does he mean by simplicity and God's godly sincerity? Well, simplicity is translating a word that refers to personal integrity expressed in word or in action. So probably dealing with the words that he spoke to them. He, was, he had integrity when he spoke to them. He had integrity when he wrote to them. So it's simplicity or sincerity, uprightness, frankness, okay, in communication. 
Sincerity renders a word that refers to the quality or state of being free from dissimulation, where you say one thing but you mean another, or you have some hidden motive. So it's sincerity or purity of, of motive. And so Paul is basically insisting to the Corinthians, look, I've been a person who, who I say what I mean and I mean what I say. Paul doesn't have a hidden agenda. He's been completely straightforward with the Corinthians in all of his dealings with the Corinthians. He has not dealt with them sinfully. He says there he's not dealt with them in worldly wisdom or in earthly wisdom. He, he hasn't behaved like Darcy in, in the first half of Pride and Prejudice. Paul was on the level with them the whole time. He has integrity, and so his boasting is that his conscience testifies to this integrity. Now, even as we're reading this, these words, maybe you're looking at this, you're thinking it's a little bit strange because boasting, biblically, is generally viewed as a bad thing. Um, in fact, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for boasting. You remember in the first letter to Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is not good. So what's going on here? If, if boasting is generally bad, how, why, why is Paul boasting to them? Well, think about this. Um, why, why is he boasting if boasting is not good? It turns out that some boasting is good and some boasting is bad. The question is, how do you know the difference between good and bad boasting? Well, bad boasting happens when you boast in yourself. Good boasting happens when you boast in God. So you remember what Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in verses 28 to 31. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Meaning God chose a bunch of nobodies who didn't have a resume so that they couldn't boast about their own achievements as having been the basis for their relationship with God. So God chooses lowly people so that they won't boast in themselves. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Anyone who might find reason to boast in themselves, take the, don't, don't aim the boasting at yourself. Aim the boasting towards God. That kind of boasting is righteous boasting, the good boasting. Bad boasting, boasting in yourself, your own deservedness. Good boasting, boasting in the Lord alone. Well, then somebody might say, well, doesn't this make Paul's boasting bad here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Because he's boasting in his own conscience conscience and integrity. Isn't that the kind of boasting that's excluded? Well, let's go back and take a closer look at verse 12. What does it say? Look at verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and sincerity, literally sincerity from God, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so, towards you. Now look at the text. You, your translation probably says something like sincerity, simplicity and godly sincerity. It's literally simplicity and godly sincerity from God. Where do these, integrity, where do these characteristics of integrity come from? They come from God. How does this get accomplished in his life? By the grace of God, he says. So 
is Paul pulling himself up by his own moral bootstraps and saying, hey, everybody look at me. That's not what he's doing. He's saying all of this comes from God. It's much like what he says in Romans chapter 15, in verses 17 and 18. He says, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and by deed. Where does all this integrity come from? Where does all this uprightness come from? It doesn't come from Paul. It comes from God. And I'm going to boast in things pertaining to God. When we think about boasting and we think about the work of God in our lives, this is how we have to think. We don't have anything that we have not received. Every good and perfect gift has come down to us from above, and we are but grateful and astonished recipients of God's amazing grace. We are beggars. He alone is the benefactor. We have nothing. He has everything. Our salvation, our character, if there's anything good about it, is not about God making much of our worth and value. Our salvation and our character is about God enabling us to savor his worth and value for us in Christ. And so what's going on here with Paul? Paul is simply saying that the grace of God is evident in his life in the way that he has behaved towards the Corinthians. What he cites is not his own doing, but God's doing. And the truth is that every Christian, all of us in here, every Christian ought to be able to give testimony to the grace of God at work in our lives. If you can't do that, if you can find no evidence of God's grace there, there's a question whether you are in the faith at all. In fact, Paul challenges the Corinthians on these terms at the end of this very book in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 5, where he says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. What does that mean? You're supposed to, it means you're looking in your life to see if there are evidences of, of grace there. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So, Paul's announcing his integrity. I've never misbehaved towards you. And he's saying that this is because of the grace of God in, in me. And so he's boasting in his own conscience in that, in that sense. Now, all of this is the basis for why he's asked them to pray for him. You'll remember in verse 11, he had asked them to pray for him. Why, why is he asking them to pray for him? Well, because I've always behaved in integrity towards you. And so Paul's integrity is verse 12. But look at verse 13 where it talks about Paul's writing. Because Paul's communications with them have not only been in person, but he's been writing to them. And he says this in verse 13. He says, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. Now notice this verse 2 begins with the word for. Which means that Paul is introducing the basis upon which he says that he acted with integrity towards them. This is the evidence that I've always acted with integrity towards you. There's a question about whether or not I'm a straight shooter when I write to you. I said I was coming. I didn't end up coming. But no, I'm telling you this. I'm not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. My writing to you is the proof of my integrity towards you. So I'm always saying what I mean and meaning what I say. 
Now, this has come into question in, in Corinth. Paul had previously written to them announcing his intention to come and to visit them and, and to be with them for this extended visit that I told you about. But um, let me read to you the exact verses where he says this. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 18 through 19. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 16 and verses 5 and following. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But as we know, Paul's plans don't work out. And instead of an extended visit, after passing through Macedonia, he had to make an emergency visit to the Corinthians. This is going to become more clear as we make our way through 2 Corinthians. But he has to make this emergency visit to Corinthians to deal with the problems that were going on there in the church and opposition to him there within the church. Um, we can tell from 2 Corinthians that that visit did not go well. There was someone in the church who stood up and opposed Paul and challenged him, and the rest of the church did nothing to get that guy back into line. And so Paul, as a result of this visit, he comes to town, but then he has to leave really quickly. And so the Corinthians were perhaps left wondering, what, what's happening to all your promises about coming to stay with us for an extended period of time? What about visiting us after going through Macedonia? Why don't you do what you say, Paul? You say what you mean, mean what you say. Well, you apparently not. You're here and you're gone. You're done with us. Paul's response is, I'm not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. You know, Paul might have reminded them of what he actually said in 1 Corinthians, that twice he told them he was coming if the Lord wills or if the Lord permits. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He simply says, I'm not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. I was always straightforward with you. My plans changed because you changed, but I never lied or vacillated with you. So there's something in verse 13 that's really profound that I think it's worth our time to linger over for a moment. Paul says, I'm not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. The reading he has in mind is likely referring to the public reading of Scripture. There's a special word that is used in the New Testament to refer to the public reading of Scripture when the church gathers. He uses that word here when he says what you read. So he says, I think he's talking about the public reading of Scripture in, in the gathered assembly. And, the, and then when the Corinthians received a letter from Paul, the common practice was as they would have it read aloud to the entire congregation so everybody got to hear Paul's actual words to them as they were written. And Paul says there was no hidden agenda beyond the words that were read to them. He also says he has no hidden agenda beyond what they understood. And that word for understand is um, not just a word that means knowledge or calling something to mind. It's a word that also has an implication of approval of the thing that the person is thinking about. So Paul is saying that I don't mean anything other than what you read and approved. So think about this. He's making this a matter of his integrity. There's nothing hidden here. What you read and approved is what I meant. There's nothing behind this. I'm not obf obfuscating with you. You know, when I was in college, before 
Susan came into the picture of my life, um, my best friend and I had a crush on the same girl. Um, I knew he liked the girl, but he didn't know that I liked the girl. And so he was behind the scenes sharing with me all his deepest feelings about things. And he had just been on this mission trip over the summer, and he had made a vow to the Lord that he wasn't going to date anybody for a year so he could focus on his, his spiritual life. But then he got back, and this gal comes into the picture, and he's starting to really struggle with his vow. And he wants to go after her, but his conscience is killing him because of this vow that he made while he was on this spiritual high. And he's so tortured between keeping the vow or pursuing the girl. And he's telling me all of this and asking my counsel about this. But he doesn't know that he's talking to a guy who has a crush on the same girl. So what do you think my counsel is to him? You got to keep your vow, spiritual boy. Man, read the, I knew all the verses about keeping vows. I kid you not. Look at this, you know. I was giving him self-serving counsel. I was saying to him one thing while concealing from him my real aims and motives. That's what Paul seems to be dealing with here. There seems to be a question about his real aims and motives when he writes to them. When he doesn't show up in Corinth like they, like they were expecting him to. It calls his word into question. And Paul's saying, I don't have ulterior aims and motives beyond what you read and affirm. Who can say that, by the way? We can say that sometimes. What's fascinating is that Paul can say this all the time about all of his canonical writings. But what I want you to notice in this verse is that Paul is actually telling us something really profound about the way that we're supposed to be reading Scripture. About the way we understand the nature of Scripture and about the way that you and I are supposed to be reading Scripture. Uh, a commentator named Mark Seifert, he says this about this particular verse. I want to read it to you. He says, Paul avers that there are no hidden motives, no hidden meanings to be deciphered from his letters. As he tells them later, if his gospel is hidden, it's hidden to those whose minds have been blinded by the God of this world. There's nothing in Paul's letters, though, beyond what they read and recognize. The hermeneutic of Scripture, which means the interpretation of Scripture, the hermeneutic of Scripture as a whole comes to expression in this word to the Corinthians. Paul hides nothing behind the words that he writes. I think Seifert is, is right. Paul says that there's nothing else for his readers to know except what they read and what they understand, what they have approved. And so Paul's saying, I've made my intention clear in the words I've used. You don't have to wonder if there's some other coded messages here. The ordinary literal sense is the only sense in which I intend for you to understand me. This is so important, okay, that I've taken an extra amount of time in the sermon for this, okay? This is so important because so many people reject this approach to reading Scripture. They say that there are other meanings that go beyond what the author meant at the time that he wrote it. I went to an annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature some years ago. And the Society of Biblical Literature, SBL, it's, um, it's a broad array of Bible scholars. It's not a, you know, people who hold to the evangelical faith like we do here. There are a lot of really theologically liberal people at this. And so whenever I go to SBL, I usually try to make a 
point to go to the LGBT queer hermeneutics section. And I went to this section one year, and it is as advertised, okay? And I went to this guy's paper. It's a guy named Joseph Marshall, he, Ball State University. He's presenting a paper on the treatment of intersex children. As you know, most children when they're born, it's pretty easy to determine whether or not they're male or female. You can just look at the anatomy and you can know, ah, it's a boy or it's a girl. With, there's a certain small portion of the population though where that's not the case. There's a genetic abnormality that leads to a physical abnormality and you can't just look and tell if it's a boy or a girl and a treatment protocol has arisen over the years where corrective surgeries are performed on some of these infants to fix them. And so this guy, Joseph Marshall, is presenting a paper saying that he's against those surgeries. I actually agree with him about that. I, I'm, I don't like those either, but he's making a point based on Galatians. What in the world in Galatians is there about surgeries on intersex children? Paul's against circumcision in Galatians. He's against genital mutilation. So we should be against these intersex surgeries now. And so I'm listening to this argument. And it's the scriptural part that I have a problem with. He's not, he's, this is a facile argument. And so during the Q&A time, I raise my hand and I object. I say, you know, Paul wasn't really against circumcision per se. He was against circumcision as a basis for justification. You'll remember in the book of Acts, when he wanted to have a hearing with the Jews, he had Timothy circumcised as an adult, okay? Circumcision is neither here nor there, but it's, it's important if you think that it's a basis for justification. I don't think he really cared, though, whether or not a person was circumcised. I don't think that this text supports what you're saying. It's maybe a good point, but this text doesn't support it. And I kid you not, this was his response to me. He says, I don't really care what Paul means. I'm just, interesting. I'm just interested in using his words to advance this thesis. You need to know that there are a lot of Bible readers out there today. They're not necessarily Bible scholars, but they're nevertheless doing the very same thing that that guy was doing with the Bible. They're not trying to find out what the author intended to communicate at the time that he wrote. They're trying to use the Bible's words to prop up whatever worldly agenda they wish to prop up. They may not even be arguing against the Bible's authority per se. Nevertheless, they undermine the Bible's authority by reading into it meanings that were never there in the author's farthest imagination. Paul, in this text, is commending to us a different way of reading from that. It's the common sense approach to reading. It's the approach that says we ought to be looking at the Bible like it's, well, we shouldn't be looking at the Bible like it's some kind of secret code that we have to decipher. Or like it's a Lego set where you just take all the pieces and you build out of it whatever you want. Have you ever heard a sermon or a message from someone dealing with scripture treating the Bible like Legos? They just build whatever they want out of it. They're using the same words, but it doesn't mean what it originally meant from the author. They're just building new things out of it. Paul's saying that's not, what, that's not what this is about. The Bible has a meaning set by its authors. Any meaning other than what the author intended is error. And Paul makes it a matter of his own integrity by saying that I don't have any meanings except the ones that you read and accepted. I've been straightforward with you. 
we aren't reading the Bible the way that Paul is implying we should be reading it here, we're distorting the Bible's message. Paul's integrity is that he says what he means and he means what he says. I'm not saying that means it's always going to be easy to figure out. We sit at some distance from Paul and from the rest of the biblical writers. Sometimes we have to do work. But guess what? When, he was, the, when Paul was writing to his original readers, it wasn't, it wasn't it, work, <laughs> okay? It was, they understood it. Paul talks about his integrity, talks about his writing, he talks about his hope. Quickly, everybody look at verse, last part of verse 13. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Literally, at the end of verse 13, he says, I hope you will understand to the end. And he uses the word, the same word for understand that he used earlier in the verse, which means he wants them to understand and approve of the truth that he preached to them all the way until the end, which means all the way to the end time to the return of Christ. And so he says that this acknowledge, he says this acknowledging that their understanding isn't perfect now. He says, you partially understand us. Now, them partially understanding him means he may be just acknowledging the fact that all of us have imperfect knowledge, right? We all know in part, 1 Corinthians 13. But he may, also, he may mean that as a congregation, they haven't all come together in approving Paul and his ministry, that there's division in the congregation. Whatever the imperfection was, Paul means to highlight he follows with an extraordinary statement because he says this, I hope you will fully understand and approve that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Here's, here's what he's getting at here. Paul and the Corinthians have had tense relations with one another over the previous year or so before his writing of this letter. By the time he writes the letter, I think most of it has been worked out. There's still some issues in Corinth, but a lot of it has been worked out since his painful visit to them. But there were still some opponents that were hanging around the church in Corinth. And yet Paul says that despite all of their relational mishaps, when the Lord returns, he will boast of them and they will boast of him. Meaning they will boast of all about the Lord's grace, bringing every one of them to the finish line. This is a remarkable statement because it frames how all of us should be thinking about each other. And it especially frames how we should be thinking about each other in times of tension and in times of conflict. I'm just thinking this week how many articles I've seen written by Christian leaders to Christians warning them, instructing them, admonishing them not to let differences over issues of reopening to divide them. Uh, the fact is, every church that I know, I've been watching other churches making plans to reopen this week, and almost every church I know of, including our own, are composed of members who have strong differences of opinion over the wisest way and time to reopen church. Every pastor I know is trying to figure out how to be wise and how to lead their congregations well, knowing that they're there are divisions over certain things. There's much we could say about that, but I just want to address one aspect of this. 
Because we need to be careful that we don't let these differences become an occasion for the devil or for our flesh to destroy our unity in Christ. And one of the best ways that we can do that when we get frustrated with each other or turn um, cold is to turn our hearts to the truth that Paul has just enunciated here. Paul's talking about the fact that there's questions about his character. He's in the background. There's all these tensions that have, got, that have gone on between them. He's had to face down an opponent in Corinth who grieved him so deeply that he had to cut his visit short. And that opponent made a mess of his relationship with the rest of the congregation. And yet, Paul still says of them, you're going to be my boast when I get to heaven. Which means in times of conflict, in times perhaps when we're really frustrated with each other, we need to be able to look at each other and still see the big picture about each other. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be there. You are going to be there and you are going to be my boast. I am going to boast in the grace of God evident in you. You are going to boast in the grace of God evident in me. We may not be seeing eye to eye with one another about any number of issues on this side of glory. But on the big things, we are still in this together. And we can't let the little things destroy any of that unity. On the big things, we're, gonna, we're together. And because of that, we're going to be in this together for eternity. This is the perspective that's animating Paul in the midst of his conflicts with the Corinthians, it's the, it's the perspective that has to animate us during times of stress and, and conflict. If we lose that big picture, I, I, we lose everything. So we have to hang on to this at all costs. Paul's explained to him his integrity. He's explained to them his writing. He's explained to them his hope. His hope is fixed on the fact that God's not going to leave any of them behind. God is going to finish what he started in all of them. And he's taking us all to the same destination. And one day, all of the things that divide us here are just going to melt away. And we will look at one another with broad smiles and laugh and wonder, how did we get so crosswise about that? You're going to be my boast. I'm going to be your boast. If you're here this morning... Or if you are listening, watching, maybe on Facebook Live, we want you to know that what we believe is that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. We have been alienated from God because of our sin. Our sin earns us judgment. But because of God's grace, he determined a way for us to be rescued from his judgment. He sent his one and only son into the world, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. He took the punishment that we deserve. Three days later, he, God raised him up from the dead and exalted him to his right hand. And Jesus is alive even now and offers eternal life and reconciliation to anyone who will believe in him and trust in him alone for their salvation. If you're here this morning and you don't know that salvation, you need to know that the invitation is on the table. The fellowship that we're talking about in this church is grounded upon that gospel message of Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners. 
If you want to be reconciled to God, the only way to be reconciled is to believe in Jesus. And he will, in fact, save you. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that you would help us to be able to boast about your work in and among us. Lord, I pray that there would be manifest evidences of your grace in our lives. And Lord, I pray that it would make us more reliant upon and more trusting of you. I pray we would never let grace putrefy into some sort of a self-reliance or self-impressed ego trip. Lord, help us to be humble people who know that all that we have, all that we are, because of you. And Lord, I pray for those who are here who may not know you. I pray that they would take this moment to take account of their lives, would repent of their sin, believe in the gospel, and be saved. Lord, do your work in your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.